0: you are listening to call of the herald book one of the dawning of power trilogy a podcast novel written and read by brian rathbone for more information and additional downloads visit brianrathbone.com thank you for listening the jean and varic nations waged a holy war that lasted hundreds of years they fought over conflicting interpretations of religious documents, none of which could be proved or disproved. Meanwhile, the Elsic nation remained neutral, often acting as a mediator during peace talks. Many times, peace was made only to be broken again upon the first provocation. There came a new Elsic leader, Vaughn of the Elsics he ascended the throne after killing his uncle, King Venez. Vaughn had been clever and murdered his uncle during the Harvest Festival, when there were hundreds of people in attendance who might have wanted the king dead. No one could identify the killer, and a veil of suspicion hung over the court. Elaborate conspiracy theories were rampant, and Vaughn encouraged them since they served his purposes well. Those who believed treachery was afoot were much less likely to speak out for fear of being the next mysterious death. The teacher droned on. Vaughn believed his nation's historical neutrality in the war was folly, and that it would be better to conquer both nations while they were weakened by the prolonged war. The Elsics did not condone the use of Istra's powers, claiming it was blasphemous, and none of their scholars were skilled in Arcana. Vaan had no large army at his disposal either, so he concluded that Istra's power was the only way he could defeat both nations. He would use the very powers that were flaunted by the Jahn and the Variks as the agents of their destruction. He staged clandestine raids against each nation, disguising his men as soldiers from the opposing nation. His instructions were clear. He wanted people captured, not killed, because he wanted slaves. Those captured were transported in secret to the Downs, which we believe to be high in the Pinook Mountains. Camps were built, and the slaves were forced to experiment with creating powerful weapons using Istra's power. There were many failures, as most of those captured had no experience in such things, but after countless attempts, a slave named Imitari made a deadly discovery. Weakened from working in stuffy quarters, he convinced his captors to let him work outside whenever the sun shone. His efforts were fruitless for many weeks, and many of his experiments lay about in disarray, unfinished or forgotten completely, except for the details in his copious notes. Most of them consisted of various compounds of elements he placed in clay mugs, which he sealed with mud. One day, while working on his experiments, an explosion knocked him off his feet, and he knew one of his concoctions had worked. It took many more efforts for him to duplicate his success. One major problem was that his explosive needed to charge in the light of both Istra and Vestra before it would detonate. As it became saturated with energy, it would begin to glow, gradually getting brighter and brighter, until it would eventually explode. Vaughn was pleased by Imitari's discovery, and after several refinements and small-scale demonstrations, he declared it the success he'd been looking for. Imitari was raised to the highest status of slave, barely less than a free man. Vaughn ordered the other slaves to build enormous statues in the likeness of Istra and Vestra, sharing a loving embrace. These great behemoths became known as the statues of Terhilian, and packed with the new explosive they were sent to the various Jahn and Varric cities. Appearing to be tokens of peace, they were readily accepted and revered. The wars had drained the Jan and Varric nations, and lacking the resources to fight, they were relieved to receive the gifts. It was an abominable tactic, and one I hope is never eclipsed. Drawn to the statues like moths to a flame, the faithful and war-weary congregated in enormous numbers around the likenesses of their gods. All but a few of the statues detonated, resulting in cataclysmic explosions that leveled entire cities, killing countless souls. The toxic aftermath debilitated those not killed by the initial blasts, and most died soon thereafter. And so began mankind's darkest age, a time known as the Purge. Master Edling continued, his unvarying cadence threatening to put Katrin and most of the other students into a deep sleep. The snake, which Katrin now saw was an olive-green tree snake, was lured from Chase's pouch by the stillness. Its slender head and neck poked from the pouch, looking like a bean pod with eyes. Katrin held her breath as it slithered forward and coiled itself around the chair leg. Peten noticed Katrin's sideways glances and gave her a snide look, tossing his long blond hair over his shoulders. With his muscular build, strong jaw, and piercing blue eyes, he cast a striking figure but his attitude and ego made him the least attractive person Catrin had ever met. She felt little pity for him as the snake continued to follow its instinct, which was to climb. Peton was oblivious to its presence and continued to look bored, casting his own glances to get the attention of Rosette Guildsmith. The snake slithered up the slats on the back of his chair, It brushed against his curls and still he remained unaware. He shifted in his seat as if sensing the stares of Catrin, Chase, and Osborne and turned his head to glare at them. As he did, his eyes met those of the snake and he shrieked. His high-pitched scream and sudden movement alarmed the snake and it struck, biting him on the nose. Catrin knew the snake was not venomous but Peaton obviously knew nothing of the sort. He leaped from his chair, sending his desk and the snake flying. Charging from the hall, he knocked Rosette and another girl from their chairs. He showed no concern for anyone in the hall, and it was obvious his only care was for his own safety. Master Edling stormed to the back of the hall, fuming and snatched the agitated snake from the ruins of Peton's chair. After releasing it at the base of a tree in the courtyard, he returned, pushing Peton before him, forcing the shaken young man to return the desks to order. Chase's eyes danced with glee, and Osborne let a giggle slip. The townies and Master Edling glared at them with eyes like daggers and katrin sat quietly hoping the situation would somehow improve but instead it worsened peten ross you are a coward and a bore rosette said with a haughty look do not aspire to speak to me again she turned smugly away her jaw stuck out in defiance chase seemed to think things were going very well but Catron could see Peton's fury rising, his embarrassment fueling his desire for retribution. How Chase could not see the mounting danger was a mystery to Catron. Perhaps he was simply caught up in his own thirst for revenge. Master Edling concluded his lecture and dismissed the class curtly. Catron was glad to have the lesson over and tried to flow out with the rest of the crowd but Master Edling barred her path. Miss Volker, I would have a word with you, he said, and clearly he did not wish to compliment her. Yes, sir, Master Edling, sir, Katrin replied. I'm sorry I was late, sir. I'll have no excuses from you. It is your responsibility to arrive here before the appointed time. If you cannot do so then I recommend you do not attend at all. Since you wasted my time at the beginning of class, it is only fair I waste your time now. Be seated, he said, and Katrin slumped into the chair nearest the door, anxiously waiting for her punishment to be concluded. Outside the lesson hall, Chase ducked into a darkened recess and waited for Osborne. Rosette came first and she cast him a haughty glance, but he was grateful that she said nothing. Using the darkness for cover, he held his breath as Peton stormed by, followed by a mob of agitated townies. Minda and Selyse walked by, and Osborne seemed to be trying to hide behind them. Hoping no one noticed, Chase grabbed Osborne by the shirt and dragged him into the alcove. Osborne let out a small yelp before he realized it was Chase who had grabbed him, and he looked over his shoulder more than once. Looks like Edling held Catrin after class, Chase said. I told you he looked boiled, Osborne said, but there was a tremble in his voice, and he looked nervously over his shoulder. Are you going to wait for Cat? I can't, Chase said. I promised my dad I'd help with the afternoon deliveries. I can't either, Osborne said. I've chores to do, and I should probably study for the test we have coming up. Bah! Who needs to study? Chase said with a grin. Just remember everything Edling says. That's all. Osborne shook his head. That may work for you but my father'll tan my hide if I bring home bad marks. I'd better get Patches saddled and get going, or I'm going to run out of light. Chase peeked around the corner before walking back into the light, half expecting to find Peeton and the rest of the townies waiting for him. But the stables were eerily quiet. Only Patches remained in her stall, and Chase stayed with Osborne while he got her saddled. Never seen everyone clear out so quickly, Chase said. I'm starting to think the snake was a bad idea, Osborne said as he tightened the girth. Feels like I've got squirrels in my guts. You don't think they'll do anything to Cat, do you? You worry too much, Chase said, but he secretly wondered if Osborne was right. It seemed strange that Peton and the others had left so quickly and letting Osborne and Catrin travel home alone suddenly seemed like a very bad idea. There was nothing he could do about it, though, no way to take back what was already done, and he tried to drive the worry from his mind. I'm sure everything will be fine. I hope you're right, Osborne said as he mounted. Patches, who was a well-mannered mare, must have sensed Osborne's nervousness for she danced around the stable, her ears twitching as she spun. Osborne soothed her with a hand on her neck, and she trotted away with her tail tucked. I'll see you tomorrow, Osborne said with a wave. Be careful, Chase said, betraying his own fears, and Osborne rode away looking more nervous than ever. Checking around each corner as he went, Chase made his way to the mill. At each turn, he expected to find townies waiting, and their absence only increased his anxiety. I wish they would just get on with it, he mumbled to himself as he passed the market. When he saw his father waiting with the wagon already loaded, though, he forgot his fears. They had enough work to keep them until nightfall, and he would have time to think of little else. After sitting far longer than needed to make up the time she had missed, Katrin began to wonder if Master Edling had forgotten she was there. He was completely engrossed in his text, and she was hesitant to interrupt. She tried to be patient, but she desperately wanted to talk to Chase, and she shifted in her seat constantly. You are dismissed, he said suddenly, without looking up. Thank you, Master Edling. It won't happen again, sir, Catrin said as she rose to leave. It had better not, and do not think for a moment that I am unaware of your involvement in today's disruption. You can pass that along to your cousin as well, he said, and Catrin did not bother to deny it, knowing it would do no good. She walked quickly to the watering hole arriving to find Strom busy with the mounts of two nobles. She waited in the shadows, not wanting the nobles to complain about riffraff hanging around the stables. It had happened before, and she didn't want to impose on Strom. Once the nobles made their instructions abundantly clear, they strolled into the watering hole, and Katrin emerged from her hiding place. Thanks for keeping out of sight. Strom said. Salty's in the last stall. You can saddle him yourself, can't you? He asked with a smirk. I think I can manage, though the task is beneath me, Katrin replied, and her sarcasm brought a chuckle from Strom. Her tack had been cleaned and hung neatly outside the stall. He had treated her horse and gear as if they were his own, and she appreciated the gesture. Salty gave her no trouble, being aware he was on his way home where his feed bucket waited. Strom was still attending the noble's horses and tack when she mounted. Thank you, Strom. I appreciate your help, she said, waving as she left. Don't mention it, Cat. Just try not to make a habit of it, he replied with a wink and returned to his work. Salty needed little prompting and he broke into a trot as soon as they left town. Catrin turned him onto the wagon trail that meandered toward her home, hoping Chase would meet her there. She had expected to find him waiting at the watering hole, and his absence concerned her. She was tempted to push Salty to a gallop, but resisted the urge. The trail was muddy and slick, and speed would only put her and Salty at risk. Her father and Benjamin had warned her about such behavior, and she heeded their advice. Engrossed in her thoughts, she let Salty cover the familiar distance without her input. But as she approached the woods, she heard someone cry out. Urging Salty forward, she scanned the trees for signs of trouble. Through the foliage, she saw flashes of movement in a clearing, and harsh laughter echoed around her. When she saw Patches, Osborne's mare, wandering through the trees still saddled and bridled, she nearly panicked. Osborne would never leave his horse in such a state, and she knew he was in trouble. After jumping from the saddle, she tied Salty to a nearby tree and approached Patches, who recognized her and cooperated as Catrin tied her to another tree. Meanwhile, she heard more muffled cries. Running as fast as she could toward the nearby sound, she burst into the clearing. Osborne was near the center, on his hands and knees. Blood flowed freely from his nose and mouth, and he clutched his side. Peton Ross, Carter Besson, and Chad Macab were on horseback and appeared to have been taking turns riding past Osborne beating him with their wooden staves. "'Stop this madness!' Catrin shouted as she ran to Osborne's side. She crouched over his body, hoping to protect him, yet knowing she could not. She was overmatched. He whimpered beneath her, spitting blood through his ruptured lips. "'Out of the way, farm girl, or you'll share this one's fate.' He needs a lesson in showing respect to his betters, Peton said as he spurred his horse. As he swept past, he swung his staff in a powerful arc, landing a solid blow on Catron's shoulder. She barely had time to recover from his attack before Carter approached. His mount was blowing hard from the workout, sweat frothing around saddle and bridle alike. His staff swung wide, striking her on the hip, but she barely felt the pain. As Peton wheeled his horse and dug in his heels, his eyes were those of a madman. He seemed intent on killing her and Osborne, and Katrin became convinced her death approached. Peton was a well-muscled athlete who had trained in the jousts for as long as he could ride. He would not miss his target again and her defiance clearly enraged him, leaving little chance for mercy. Time slowed, and as she cried out in fear, her voice sounded hollow and strange in her ears. Still, Peton came, aiming his mounts so close that she feared they would be trampled. He did not run them down, though. Instead, he brought his horse just close enough to provide a clear shot at Catron. She watched in horror as his staff swung directly at her head, and she saw her own terrified reflection in its highly polished surface as it blocked out the rest of the world. Intense sadness overwhelmed her as she prepared to die. Though she hoped Osborne would survive the encounter, it seemed unlikely. In the next instant, Katrin's world was forever changed. Her body shuddered, and a sound louder than thunder ripped through the clearing. She tried to make sense of what she saw as the world seemed to fly away from her. Everything took on a yellowish tint which faded to blackness as she crumbled to the ground. Nat Dersinger turned his nose to the wind and inhaled deeply. The wind carried the smell of misfortune, and he had learned better than to ignore his instincts. Despite the fact that he'd caught no fish, he pulled in his nets. Looking out at the clear skies broken only by fluffy white clouds that seemed frozen in time, he wondered if he was just being silly but the ill-feeling persisted and grew more intense with every passing moment. With a sense of urgency, he raised his sails and guided his small craft back to the harbor. Along the way, he passed other fishing vessels, but no one waved or shouted out in greeting, as they did with other fishermen. Most just cast Nat suspicious glances. Others glared at him until they were lost from sight. Nat tried not to let any of it bother him, but he soon realized he was grinding his teeth and his hands were clenched into fists. Too many times he'd been treated as an outcast, as if he were not even human. With a long sigh, he released his frustration and concentrated on avoiding the scores of hidden rock formations that flanked the harbor entrance. At the docks, he received more strange looks, partly because he was back long before most of the other fishermen would return, and partly because he brought no fish to the cleaning tables, but mostly it was because he was Nat Dersinger, son of a madman. Most would rather see him dead or exiled. Others simply tolerated him. There were few people he trusted and fewer still who trusted him. It was a lonely and unforgiving existence, but he had to believe it was all for a purpose, some grand design beyond his ability to perceive or understand. He let his mind be consumed by the possibilities, and he entered an almost dreamlike state. Nothing around him seemed real as if he walked in a place somewhere between this life and the great unknowable that lay beyond. Unaware of what he was doing, he let his feet follow a path of their own choosing, permitting his unconscious mind, rather than his conscious mind, to guide the way. It was one of the few lessons his father had taught him. Sometimes the spirit knows things the mind cannot. Never ignore the urgings of your spirit. When he reached the woods outside of town, he barely recalled the walk. His feet continued to carry him into the countryside, and he wondered, as he often did, if he was simply fooling himself, assigning himself otherworldly powers rather than admitting he shared his father's illness. In truth, that was the crux of his life. Most seek answers to a myriad of questions, but Nat was consumed by one question alone. Had his father been a true prophet or a madman? As he found himself suddenly climbing over a hedge of bramble, he was inclined to believe the latter. But then the ground trembled, and the air was split by a mighty thunderclap. Leaping over the hedge, Nat moved with confidence and purpose, suddenly trusting his instincts more than his senses. For the first time in a very long time, he believed not only in his father, but also in himself. As the sun was sinking behind the mountains, casting long shadows across the land. Katrin woke. She sat up slowly, dizzy and disoriented, and put one hand out toward the ground to steady herself. It found Osborne's chest. He was unconscious, his breathing shallow, but at least he looked no worse than he had when she'd arrived. She hoped he was not seriously injured. Her body ached as she moved, and she closed her eyes. Drawing a deep breath, she tried to calm herself. Moans broke the eerie silence, and Katrin heard someone behind her gasp. She turned to see who it was, and only then did she behold the devastation that surrounded her. The clearing was a good bit larger than when she'd entered it. Every blade of grass, bush, and tree within a hundred paces had been leveled. She stood unsteadily at the center of a nearly perfect circle of destruction. All the debris pointed away from her, as if she had felled it with a giant sickle. Turning around slowly, she took in the awful details. Supple stalks of grass had been so violently struck that they were broken cleanly in half. In all her seventeen summers, Katrin had never witnessed such a terrifying sight. Behind her stood Nat Dersinger, a local fisherman who was thought to be mentally unstable. He leaned on his ever-present staff, his jaw slack, and made no move. The staff was taller than he was, half its length shod in iron, which formed a sharp point. His wild, graying hair stuck out in all directions, and his eyes were wide, making him look every bit the madman some thought him to be. Though he was of an age with Catron's father, the lines on his face made him appear much older. Peton's horse lay unmoving in a tangle of down trees. Horrified, Katrin saw Peaton's boots sticking out from under the animal, and she feared him dead, but she could not make herself move. "Help! My leg is broken!" she heard Carter shout, and she turned to see him struggling to get out from under his own dead horse. Chad wandered aimlessly, followed by his faithful mount, which limped badly. "Gods have mercy! I bear witness to the coming of the herald. The prophecy has been fulfilled, and Istra shall return to the world of men. The words poured out of Nat, and struck fear into those who heard them. Townsfolk and farmers had begun to arrive, having heard the blast and been guided by the shouting. They tended the wounded, and word was sent to the masters, as well as the parents of the students involved. People scrambled to help Peaton and the others, and many cast frightened glances at Catrin as they passed. Osborne regained consciousness, and a kindly old man helped him to the edge of the clearing to await the masters. Few folk had the courage to speak to Catrin, but those who did all asked the same question. What happened? I don't know was the only honest answer Katrin could give, but no one seemed to believe her. When her father arrived, he ran to where she stood, tears filling his eyes. Overwhelmed, she collapsed into his embrace. He hugged her and tried to comfort her, but he seemed unable to find the right words. Instead, he tied Salty to his saddle and pulled Katrin atop his roan mare and they rode home in cautious silence. That concludes this episode of Call of the Herald. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening.